As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Gadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. Joining me today is our podcast producer, Ben Elman. Hey, Ben. Hello, everyone. Hello. Sherlyn is still out. Uh, she's taking a well-deserved break, but we do want to say happy early birthday to Sherlyn, because I see that on our calendar for next Monday. So she'll be out then. Everybody send Sherlyn your happy birthday notes. Remember, she loves threads more than anything else. So send her she lots of birthday thread. messages on threads. On Monday for Monday in particular. This week, folks, we're going to be talking about the rise of streaming video prices. And that seems to be a common thing across pretty much every streaming service. We have a special guest on to help us break all of that down and to figure out, you know, will this ever end? Um, will these services survive or can they just keep raising prices forever? As always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. Drop us an email at podcastinggadget.com. I especially want to know what you think of streaming video prices. Like, are you, what is your cutoff price for all these services? Or are you just giving up on these services, you know, when they just get too expensive? This week, we saw news about Apple TV raising its prices. Uh, Disney also raised prices back in August. And there was also news about Netflix raising the prices of its premium plans. It seems like all of the streaming services are just pushing prices higher um, for many reasons. And to help us dive into that is Yanko Rutgers, uh, author of the newsletter Low Pass about the intersection of tech and entertainment. Hey, Yanko, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. No problem. And I've been following your your work for a while, uh, Yanko, especially at GigaOM, and you were at Variety for a while, too. So I feel like you're well-versed to talk about this topic. What is going on in the world of streaming media? Why are prices jumping so much now? It seems like everything is getting a lot more expensive and it's jumping quite a bit, right? Even mm -hmm. I, I looked at this earlier today, just zooming back just a few years, like Apple TV started at basically half the price of what they're going to charge now. The same is true for Disney Plus. So it seems like these prices across the board almost doubled within three or four years, which is kind of extreme. But uh, if you take a look at the industry as a whole, Everybody kind of had a late start to compete with Netflix. Everybody suddenly realized that streaming media was where it was at, that cable TV wasn't going anywhere, cord cutting was accelerating. So they were all jumping into this and they realized that they had to invest heavily to catch up or even have a chance to catch up with Netflix. And so billions and billions of dollars later, they realized that they have to make up back some of that money and that they have to right. actually get profitable. And in many cases, that means... The, the only way to do that is to raise prices. That's some good context, Yonko. Like, yeah, Netflix definitely pioneered the space. I mean, I, I remember when Netflix streaming started, too. Like, even that was, like, a weird thing. Like, I'm going to watch something just streaming in my web browser. Why would I want to do that? And then shortly afterwards, we got the apps on other services and things like the Apple TV and Roku devices, and that became the standard. But, yeah, it is funny. Um, it was kind of one year where everyone was like, oh, crap, we need to go streaming. So, right, Disney Plus launched, uh, Max, HBO Max launched a couple months before that. And I remember specifically covering the Max launch. That was one of the most, like, deranged things I've seen because HBO, uh, you were probably covering this too, Yonko. Like, the, the HBO people just, like, had no plan. It was really buggy. Um, we didn't have, like, I couldn't test the platform before it launched. It seemed, like, super rushed. It seemed like people were just rushing into launching streaming and the low prices are a symptom of that right to make you pay attention i guess and i mean if you just compare the product level 
many of them or most of them are still trying to catch up right so netflix has figured out very has pretty much figured out recommendations very well personalized recommendations pushing you more and more shows that that are similar to what you watch or stuff that you might like and if i compare that to some of these other services max like keeps emailing me about sex in the city it seems like three times a week <laughs> i've never watched yeah. it but there's the keep trying to push it down my throat and and that's that's true across many of them i think there is just the investment the level of investment that netflix had in the space by starting 15 years basically before everyone else mm -hmm. it's hard to catch up with that it and is. I, okay you say that it, they started about 15 years before because i went and looked up the history yes netflix streaming started in what like 2007 i remember yeah. but it feels like it truly hit the average consumer around like maybe 2010 2011 or so mm -hmm. when, when then, tv's got smart basically when yes. smart tv apps are happening yeah and then i really distinctly remember a moment in around 2013 when netflix premiered house of cards where people were like wow streaming only tv all the episodes in the season drop at once. They made an original show that looks high quality, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's when we get to binging, that's when we get to everything else. So, Yonko, I think you've already answered one of our first questions, which is, have we been spoiled by a decade of very cheap streaming media? Yeah, yeah, I think so, for sure. And uh, it was also, there was a time, just like if you think back to 2019 or right before the pandemic, where all these new services were popping up, like Apple TV Plus and all these things, Disney Plus. And at that time, because they uh, pioneered or they started with such cheap prices, it seemed like, oh, add another one. Why not? Why not? $5 yeah, yeah. a month or you got like an intro package through your telco and you didn't pay anything for a year or something like that. There was all these sweetheart deals for a while that made it really easy to, you know, add more and more and more services. And I, I think at this point, people are arriving at the point where they're like, well, is Apple TV worth that much money? Is it worth 10 bucks a month? And, and uh, do I really need to pay that much just to rewatch uh, Ted Lasso or something? And and some of these services just don't have the breadth of and depth of content to to justify some of these prices. For sure, like Paramount Plus, uh, I do love a bunch of the shows there, but there is there is no reason for Paramount Plus to be its own separate service. I did see the news. Um, I think NBC announced that like, Peacock is actually doing pretty well, like better than they expected it to. So that's surprising. But I one thing I noticed, Yonko, is that Netflix was also a big, um, you know, it was a big tech company for a while, kind of coasting on VC money and people throwing money at Netflix even before they were like really making a profit, right? Did that set up like unrealistic expectations for what these companies could do with their streaming services? Because it, it felt too magical almost. Well, I think Netflix had an interesting advantage because they had a legacy business, but it was a lot younger than a lot of the other legacy businesses. And they were smart about like following it up with something else so they were in the dvd space and people that just ended like a couple of weeks ago they shipped their last dvd but they made a ton of money with dvds and that financed streaming at first and so then they started making money with streaming in the us and that financed their international expansion now they're making money with streaming across the world and they're starting to get into gaming so they're pretty quick as following up and if you look at some of these legacy media companies well they still have linear networks and those are declining slowly and slowly. And it's taking them a long time to figure out, should we get out of this? How many of those can we keep running? How many of those do we need to shut down? 
it's very different, right? And so um, for for them, for for these media companies to compete with Netflix is just really really hard. But uh, I think the other part of all of this is that advertising um, is just becoming a bigger and bigger part of streaming. So all these services are starting to run ads. And I think yeah. they are actually, we need to look at not Netflix, but Hulu. Mm-hmm. Hulu mm-hmm. early on had ads on their service and they early on figured out we can charge for a subscription and have ads at the same time if you make it cheap enough. And then actually we can ma- more than make up with the advertising for what we're losing. Like if we offer this subscription in a package or maybe as a you know promotion, people just pay like two, three bucks a month. But for all the rest, we're going to make up with advertising. And everybody else is now like, wait a minute, that seems like a good idea. Even Netflix is doing that now, basically. It seems like we're TVing our streaming, though. Yeah. Like, what was all this slowly, bit yeah. by bit, we're adding ads back in. It seems like more and more the streaming services are realizing like, oh, wow, we get way more press coverage if we don't drop the entire season all in one day and people are talking about it only for maybe a week and a half or two weeks so they're going back to weekly releases how long until there is a just carousel of program where you can just go in on uh hulu or go in on you know some part of netflix and they'll just be showing something as if you just turned on linear tv i mean shutter does that right now dude like uh, the other services, if you launch the Shutter app, you can flip between four different horror movies that are playing like a TV channel. I mean, it is, and, yeah. and that's that's this whole other part of streaming, which um, the fast channels that everybody has now that are integrated into a lot of the operating systems. So if you have a Google TV device or if you have a Fire TV device, they have all these linear channels. Roku does it as well. But those are primarily generally free, right? There, there's a lot of ads, there's heavy ad load. You, you said fast, Uncle. I just want to be clear. You mean fast ad supported, was it TV? Is that what that stands for? Basically? Free ad supported streaming free television. It's yeah. a mouthful, but yeah. basically it's these linear channels. And I compare them to, I, I tend to compare them to basic cable because they're sort of, you know, good enough. It's a lean back thing. You don't have to think about it. You turn it on, it keeps running. It's also good for news programming and for some of these other things. And but those are generally free. And yes, Peacock has some of those. We're seeing some of them being added to streaming. But I, I don't know if Netflix would do anything like this. I think they would probably yeah. do it a little smarter. And they've started to do some of these, like so surprise me or whatever. But I think they would be more personalized than just oh, here's 400 channels. That doesn't seem like the ideal proposition mm-hmm. for them. It is every time I talk to Roku as a company, it almost seems like they're printing money with the with the fast stuff, like with all their ad supported stuff. And then everybody starts to kind of chase that in a weird thing. But I'm glad you brought up Hulu Yanko because Hulu was always an interesting. Um, streaming company, right? Because it initially started as a joint venture between uh, Disney and NBC, and even then, um, well, News Corp was a part of it too, right? Like it was, a, it was a thing between the old media players trying to do something new, and of course, they were like, "Yeah, let's bring in ads as like one of their first things." So that made sense for them. Yeah, and I think uh, I want to say that Google had like a five percent, but I might be wrong. There was like a really minor stake or something. Uh, 
I could have gotten this wrong now, but uh, it's it's been a long time. But yeah, they they embraced ads early on. They actually had a free service for a little while too that was entirely ad supported. But then they nailed this sort of package of like a little bit of advertising, less than traditional television, a little bit of subscription, still a lot cheaper than cable, and, and that combination seemed to work for them. And that's what now everybody else is sort of chasing too. And I think that is also one other reason that we're seeing all these price increases because notably they're not on the ad-supported tier. So ad-supported Netflix is still uh, $6.99 a month, I think. Uh, all the ad- other ad-supported tiers are staying the same price. And Amazon even coming in there with this weird thing. We're like, oh, we're going to add oh advertising God. to your Prime video. To Prime. Unless you Prime Plus. Yes. I hate this so much. <laughs> Um, but I mean, it, but essentially, they're trying to push yeah. you to then, well, if you don't want to pay 20 bucks a month or whatever for Netflix, 23, is it now? Um, I think it's 23, yeah. Uh, you can get it for seven bucks if you just watch some ads. And for those services, that's actually a better deal. And for consumers, you know, if you're willing to tolerate some advertising, it's actually a pretty good deal, too. The ads may also make those companies more money, too, is the thing. Like, whereas the premium plans are guaranteed income, like some some ad rates may end up going higher for them. So they may even want to prefer people to be on the ad plans at certain times. Uh, Yanko, do you think we're going to see fewer streaming services down the line? Like, are we going to see the evolution of media in action here of things just dying off? And uh, people are already selling content to Netflix back, right? Paramount is selling, selling some Star Trek stuff to Netflix. So seems like that's happening. You, you can watch some HBO shows on Netflix now, which is uh, weird. But yeah, I think we're going to see some consolidation. I don't know if it's going to be dramatic, but we, I mean, we're starting to see some of this already. Right? Disney is now in conversations about who, buying Hulu and they might, you know, integrate, fold that into Disney Plus. Maybe it becomes like a Disney Plus Plus package or whatever. Um, and I think we're going to see that in some other areas as well. Max you could argue is is already consolidation as well now that yeah, it's not just HBO content but all these uh, reality TV shows on there it doesn't always seem to work for these brands very well if you ask me but ultimately it's inevitable because people will probably not pay 10 15 20 dollars for five six seven streaming services each that doesn't seem sustainable even even if you subscribe to all of them and i know ben you you had fun doing the math to to see (laughs) what that's like (laughs) is it as bad as when it was like during the height of cable when we were spending you know a a lot of money over 100 easily for thousands of channels we'd never watch or you know is this are we just kind of like settling in a different place for the streaming world yanko i always think it's an unfair comparison because yeah. with cable, you are getting ads. So you really would have to compare. Unless, I mean, are you talking about HBO? But that's a premium charge on top of your premium package or whatever. So uh, you really would have to compare it to the ad-supported tiers. And those are often a lot cheaper. Even if you subscribe to all of them, everything that's out there, it's still fairly affordable. And obviously, streaming is more flexible. You can, you know, dip in and out. And I think we're going to see more of that. Consumers just like, you know, subscribing to Apple TV Plus until they're done with Ted Lasso, the latest season. And then maybe, you know, canceling it for six months and then seeing what else comes around. That brings up a really important question of churn, though. Like, churn on the streaming services is probably something that a lot of these companies think about. What can you tell us about how concerned they are and what they're trying to do to keep people from just logging off and logging on for a couple of months at a time? I mean, they're definitely concerned about this. 
I think that is one of the reasons that we're starting to see more of the packaging too, where you are now subscribing to Disney Plus and Hulu and ESPN Plus as part of a package that's cheaper sometimes than even one of those servers individually almost. Uh, not quite, but but almost. It seems like that sometimes. So that's one way to cut down on insurance. So, and then we're also seeing more and more of these services, you know, as they're raising prices, come out and say, if you want to lock in this deal for Disney Plus or for Max, you can subscribe to for a whole year. And obviously, if you can tie people down for a year, you're going to have a lot yeah. less churn. And if you time yeah. that well to maybe the beginning of whatever fall TV season or whatever the equivalent is in streaming, then the next time the renewal comes around, people are going, are going to want to re-up their subscription. So we're seeing some 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 uh, measures against that. But ultimately, the way streaming is structured, it's still uh, easier for people to cancel and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. flip back and that, forth. That, that's an important point, too, because I think like listeners and consumers need to be aware you have the power when it comes to the world of streaming, right? Whereas in cable... When you decide to change or cancel your cable service, you have to set aside an hour Somebody of your day. Somebody needs to come to your house. Well, they get to come to your house, but you also have to like call and talk and wait. And sometimes they try to like push you away or they give you other deals like, no, no, no don't cancel. We'll, we'll lower your price for a little bit. But you basically have to set aside an hour to have this fight with the cable company to to disable your service. And that is, you're not going to do that easily like several times a year, whereas you could easily do that now for Apple TV or Netflix or whatever. One button, you're out. One button, you're back in. You can easily do it now. Is there a future, Yanko, where I spend 45 minutes on the phone with a Hulu representative with them trying to get me to not unsubscribe? I don't think we're going to go back to that. And and the other thing uh, that you just mentioned is there was they obviously had the ultimate package, the cable company, because they're also selling you the internet and sometimes maybe home security and and your phone line. And giving up on all of that uh, was always hard. Plus then they would say, oh, sure, you can cancel your television and your internet is going to be twice as expensive tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Or you can keep your everything and we're going to bundle it and it's the same price or something like that. So there was a lot of back and forth. Same question. Would Hulu then make kind of like punitive rates for people who are serial unsubscribers and resubscribers? But they don't have that stick of having the the pipe into your house. So I think streaming is in a different league there. And plus, companies like Netflix have basically made their name by being easy to unsubscribe and resubscribe and more having the service uh, as an argument for sticking as opposed to, you know... The, the the small fine print or whatever um so i don't think we're really going to go back to that world and if somebody was yeah. trying too hard i don't think it would go well for them it would, it would yeah the outroar would be too bad but you know what ben that is a legitimate fear because i also subscribe to uh movie theater subscription things and amc was it stubs or amc plus whatever the, the i forgot a a list the the thing if, that they made to try to compete with movie pass yeah the thing that competes with movie pass and movie pass is sort of dead but yeah I don't know. Uh, but if you cancel a list they tell you you cannot resubscribe for another six months so then it's sort of like oh well i want to see this movie in two months i'm gonna want my a list i'm gonna keep the a list um, so they've kind of figured that out, but, um, when it comes to like making unsubscribing worse, that is a complaint people have around uh, traditional media, right? If uh, the New York times or the Atlantic, if you want to subs- unsubscribe, you have to call a human being. And there is currently, I believe there's legislation being, uh, put out there 
soon. Um, that should like the the command is basically if you can easily sign up for something online, you need to be able to easily un- unsign up online, and that is something we don't currently have in this country. And I know it's being talked about, so that's that's a thing at least. Somehow, movie theater scorn feels good in a place like this. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty much. So, Yanko, anything else you want to mention about this stuff? Because I know this is something you've been paying attention to for a while. I do recall that you wrote an ebook about cord cutting, too. Like, has the dream of cord cutting died, do you think? Or is it just getting, you know, getting more complicated as more players are entering, entering the field? I mean, it's getting maybe a little bit more complicated. But the flip side, too, is that there are a lot of cheap options and cable has been getting more expensive too. We're not talking yes. about that as much anymore. Yes. But even those uh, services that were supposed to replace cable, like the YouTube TV service and the Hulu Live TV service, those have gotten ridiculously expensive so when you compare them to the starting prices. So yeah. if you want traditional live television, that is still a very, very expensive and complicated proposition. Oh, yeah, I know, because I subscribed to Hulu Live for the Olympics last year. Was it just last year because it was a little bit delayed? Um, That was silly. That was way too much. Way too much. And they, yeah, when Sling TV launched, we were like, this is amazing. It's $35 a month. It's TV. And within a couple of years, it was like easily 50 and more uh, for a lot of these services. Reminder to our listeners, over-the-air antennas are a thing. Buy one, st- connect it to your TV. If you are a little techie, you can connect one of those to like a home theater PC, connect that to like a Plex thing and even use that as a DVR that's just automatically saving your stuff. So there are things you can do. Yeah. And there's a, the, the new tablet that just came out. It's actually a really interesting device. I've started to test it. I haven't written about it yet, but it's really interesting because it's a DVR for cord cutting, but they simplified the thing. They don't charge you any monthly fees for it. You pay 99 bucks once. And you can record some of those free streaming channels, which is the first device to sort of do it out of the box without like crazy what's technical the, workarounds. What's the name of that device again? Tableau. TV.com, I think is I the website. I remember Tableau. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So, so they got acquired by a media company, actually, by Scripps. And so those guys really want to push over the air television. Figured a device would be great for that. And yeah, it's actually... It's not perfect, but it's a pretty good solution. And for people who are not quite as technical to play with, you know, HD home run and a home roll DVR solution, this is actually a good way to to get, you know, broadcast TV recorded, record some of those streaming channels and have a lot of stuff to watch basically for free. For free, basically. Cool. Um, there, There is also that TV, that company that wants to put uh, the camera on your TV, right? To give out free TV. So it seems like there's a lot of experimenting going on around the world. That sounds right scary now. to me. That we talked about it. sounds scary yeah. to me. Yes. It's uh, it's weird. But now we, we saw the restrictions are it also has to be your primary TV, right? To be one of the early testers. It's a whole. That does not seem like a thing that's going to happen. Well, anyway, Yanko Rutgers, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this stuff. Where can people find you on the internet these days? Um, so I do write this weekly newsletter you mentioned early on, Low Pass. And so if you want to subscribe to that, L-O-W-P-A-S-S dot C-C, Low Pass. Uh, and otherwise, just, you know, Google me. Uh, I am on Mastodon a lot these days, S-F-B-I dot social. Um, but yeah, Google me and you will find me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Let's move on to some other news now that we're done with streaming video. Uh, There was a big story this week. Uh, 41 states sued Meta 
for harming the mental health of its youngest users. And I'm reading a story by Carissa Bell on Engadget. Uh, The lawsuit claims the company misled the public about the safety of its platform. And this specifically relates to something we've talked about a couple of times, Ben, Um, the idea that Instagram in particular is harmful towards teenagers. Um, There have been a whole bunch of studies about that. And then Meta, I think, even back when it was Facebook, I think kept publishing other things saying, eh, it's not so bad, despite what we were hearing internally, right? Does this seem fair to you? Yeah. Um, And I'd like to point out a specific part of this article by Carissa, because it says, like, the lawsuit calls out several other Instagram features, including likes, filters, recommendation, algorithm. It states that likes promote compulsive use of the app, which I find to be really interesting. That is a difficult, more difficult thing to prove than maybe the body dysmorphia stuff, because compulsive use ends up being a little bit mercurial it like falls through your fingers a lot more easily and it doesn't show up on you know a big poster board in congress as well as you know a obviously pro-anna coded post you know yeah it seems worth calling out though because we we have reported on things from facebook and honestly other social media companies too like the the whole thing is they want you to stay on the site, right? They want you to stay using the service. And one reason, one way they can do that is to compel you by giving you like nice, nice doses of, uh, was it, uh, like nice dopamine doses whenever you get a like. And that keeps you going. It's like a wonderful feedback loop. And every social media site tries to capture that somehow. Twitter also had likes, Twitter had retweets, Twitter had the general like buzz that happens when you go viral, which I think that's the thing. You were way more addicted to that than I was. I always found that terrifying. It's uh, like Twitter in particular, like I think of like Oscar night, which was one of my favorite times to just go on Twitter and everybody would be commenting on the thing at at the same time. And even like an innocuous quote, uh, post or observation would end up getting a lot of engagement because everybody is there talking about Oscars. Okay, yeah. I mean, that that part of it, I absolutely agree because I was using Twitter much more during the Chris Rock Will Smith slap moment. And Uh oh my uh God, was that... I saw that moment hit Twitter. That was... Reverberate across Twitter. The biggest popcorn moment, maybe one of the biggest popcorn moments of the decade on social media. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that, it's, uh, what was it, um... It's Parasite winning the Oscars as well. Just like you can you can feel the reverberations of the public through social media. But for Instagram and Facebook in particular, I think you can make the argument that, you know, this thing, this feature is actually inherently, could be inherently harmful. But what what happens if they end up like deciding that likes are actually dangerous? Like that affects every social media site. But maybe it should. Honestly, like maybe this is bad. Maybe the likes are bad in addition to all the algorithmic engineering these companies do to keep us hooked, right? I can see some very reasonable pushback coming from the tech companies saying that maybe even using like differences between the generate how the generations use Instagram as an argument for you know, you aren't getting just likes on every picture that you post to grid anymore because nobody posts to grid anymore. <laughs> they may actually need to admit that no one posts to grid anymore. It's mostly things on stories. It's mostly maybe DM responses on stories um, and say like, oh, you know what? Likes, you don't even have to worry about that anymore. I, I think like, a, yeah, our our government in particular also needs to... Uh... 
I don't know, have a closer, be a little more in tune with how kids are using tech because right now all this stuff is happening around Meta. But I feel like so much of the conversation has moved on to TikTok and other services too. It's like they're they're just catching up to what was the problem maybe five years ago. Uh, years more ago, than yeah, even. more than five years yeah. ago. And you know, it's going to take maybe the one Gen Z representative in the House of Representatives to teach everyone else that it's not all about posting to grid anymore. It's like the Zoomers are posting like once every two months to grid and it's a huge yeah. carousel photo dump. Oh man, I don't even post Instagram stories, but anyway, I do see them. So I think one of the bigger things that could make this stick is whether or not the folks behind this lawsuit can make a clear connection between kind of social media and maybe like the cigarette trials the tobacco trials of years ago yep like like those companies were basically directly targeting kids and they just that that was that's the reason you don't see those advertisements anymore or the reason you don't see cigarettes in media as much anymore right it would be just really difficult to get that to stick the way um these states want to though it absolutely would be. I mean, every time I talk to these companies, too, like they are talking about their goal is engagement, right? They just want to keep you hooked. And after a while, it starts to sound like they're drug providers, right? And they just need to keep the addicts fed or they need to make new addicts. And it's just weird. It's just a really weird way of thinking about their services. And yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on the story for sure. This is going to be ongoing for a long time. In other news, I want to bring up um, Sna- uh, Qualcomm had their Snapdragon Summit this week and that's usually where they show off all their new hardware and in particular we learned about the snapdragon 8 gen 3 and i don't i don't know why they keep numbering it like this because yeah it's the snapdragon 8 system on chip um we've had gen 2 for the past year on most android phones the big selling point this year is more on device generative ai similar to what we were talking about with google's tensor g3 system on a chip basically the idea that you know your phone itself can do a lot of AI work and inferencing without hitting the cloud or doing anything else. And that that's good for security. That's good for speed too, like latency. That should surely reduce all that stuff. That's the big thing here. And it's a faster mobile chip, of course. But um, I'm wondering, Ben, like from your perspective, is there anything you'd want to do with generative AI on your phone? Like I'm using it more on the desktop, especially when I need to like create a table to compare some specs or something. But on my phone, I'm still a bit confused about it. The only thing that makes the most sense to me is the Pixel series and its magic eraser uh, feature. Like that's a really fantastic use of generative AI and like um, what's the function on the new um, versions of Photoshop, like generated fill or something like Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Beyond that... I don't know if it would be particularly useful, but it could be fun. You know, could I highly get... accurate translations? How about or transcriptions and translations? That stuff is good. Yeah, that's the dream of the Babelfish, isn't it? Like we've been <laughs> yes. working toward that for a really long time. Google had that one uh, live translation uh, demo that never went very much of anywhere. So maybe we're getting closer to that. But other than that, you know, I'm thinking, okay, can I get my voice texts to sound like Snoop Dogg or, um, or you know, Chris Hemsworth or something like that. Would that really be a good use of these chips, though? Mm, not by much. I don't know. Um, maybe better. I, these, as we've talked about around uh, when Siri became on device, too, on the iPhone 
and on the new Apple Watch. Like having the brains to just do simple things like, hey, what's the weather? Hey, what's my next appointment? Like having that stuff just happen on the device without hitting the cloud is great. Like that that just makes it faster. And you being know, able to have about, conversations with your assistant as well. I mean, that's, this is what we're building towards, yeah. right? It's not just like, hey, what's on my calendar? Um, eventually, like you could just talk to your phone and be like, can I bump that appointment to this time? And then it could trigger, you know, an appointment change plus send a note to the person, the guest or something. There are more ways the stuff can grow. But as of right now, it's all pretty simplistic, right? It's very much photo stuff. Maybe stuff helping your uh, smart assistants or something. Yeah, that's why I'm thinking of like these AI uh, things in the sense of like the first generation of apps. You know, remember when uh, iPhone apps were all like, you know, ooh, it's a lighter on your phone. Like, and there are multiple different skins on the lighter. Yeah, or the that beer is, pouring app. Yes, yeah. exactly. The beer pouring app. That's where we are with AI on phones right now. And I'm looking forward to getting off of that so it can actually be useful. I mean, one service I used a lot was Otter AI uh, for transcriptions. Oh, I use that basically every yeah. day. And when Otter first came out, I would just like on my laptop or on my phone, like have the app open and just like when I'm doing interviews or something, just have it feeding an audio. But then Otter would take that audio and spit it to their cloud, you know, their cloud stuff to do real-time transcription. And that's always been pretty good. But if you could capture that magic and just put it right in your phone um, for reporters, for anybody who needs to just take notes about things like that's fantastic. That'll be super useful. Um, so yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on this as well. I mean, this thing's gonna be showing up in all the new phones coming soon. Um, upcoming phones from Sony, Asus, OnePlus, Oppo, all the major like Chinese brands too are going to be having these. And certainly we're going to hear about next year's uh, big phones too. Like, I don't, I don't know. Is Samsung uh, even doing Snapdragon at this point? Uh, they're kind of balancing their chips and Qualcomm chips. Um, but yeah, we will hear more about this. One other interesting chip that's uh, Qualcomm talked about is the Snapdragon X Elite, which they say is their most powerful chip to date. And this one is meant for laptops. And that is interesting. Qualcomm says its performance is up to two times faster than the 13th gen Intel Core i7 with one third the power draw. So this is really gunning for what Apple is doing with their M series chips. And that is, it's cool to see that power uh, kind of get there. But I'm also reminded of when I reviewed the Surface Pro 9, uh, I don't know, was it last year or the year before, Ben, where I was just so mad at, at Microsoft because they called it the Surface Pro 9. It had the last, um, you know, Snapdragon chip for PCs. That was the 8CX Gen 3. And um, it was it was not a great Windows laptop because Windows itself is not fully built around ARM. A lot of older mm -hmm. apps just don't work. There is some, like, there's some emulation for old apps, but you can feel it. Like, it's, unless it's, like, finely tuned and rebuilt for Windows on ARM, Windows itself and a lot of apps just feel bad. So... I'm not excited about this. Can you tell me in like two to three sentences what the big difference is between Windows on ARM and the Mac M series? What did Apple do better than Windows, do you think? We've talked about this before. The Apple's main advantage is they have the whole stack. That is all Apple, right? Apple builds the chips. Apple builds the software for the chips. Apple makes the OS that everybody else has to build their software for. So Apple is in full control, you know, from top to bottom. Whereas on Windows, it's more like, um, well, third Qualcomm party, will third make, party, third party. Yeah, Qualcomm will make these chips. Um, they will hopefully work with Microsoft, but then you better hope third party developers actually rebuild some of their old apps. Also, 
there is some expectation for Windows to run 20-year-old apps. Yep. You know, I was literally just about to say yeah. that. Like, you can't run something on a new ARM-powered Surface laptop when you're working for the U.S. State Department or something, and they're still running a 25-year-old version of a program because that's the last one that they said, yes, this is actually totally secure. And you would probably keep an old laptop or something around for that. But the the other thing Apple can do is just tell all of its users to be like, hey, we are done with these chips. We're moving to this next chip. And Apple did that with the switch from Intel to its M-series chips. And it was kind of rough for some developers. But one thing Apple managed to do was create a, a software emulator that really ran older Intel apps pretty well on their new chips, too. Like the Rosetta 2, I believe it was was still faster than many PCs when it came to running older Intel apps. So like Apple just kind of knocked that out of the park. And then eventually people just started making stuff native for the M chips. And it's just like, yeah, Apple knew they've learned how to make chips with the iPhones. They knew how to optimize an operating system to really take advantage of that. And that is the power of Apple. I feel like everything when it comes to Qualcomm, they have to rely on Microsoft or they have to rely on Google and Android to kind of like reach the potential of the chips they're building. And that's that just means the progress is slow, right? So I think the Windows diehards would say something like, oh, it's very nice that Mac can get to ARM architecture much faster. And, you know, you can do all your nice, uh, like, illustrations and uh, Photoshop stuff. Meanwhile, Windows still runs the world. I mean, yes, that is, it's a very, I think that's, a. have definitely heard Windows people say that, but it's also like, guys... I'm over here test. I when I tested the first MacBook Air with the M chip, that thing had no fan and it blew away every other PC Ultra Portable. We we had benched to that point, and that that is kind of miraculous. So, yeah. And now Apple, they've also gotten really good at building good GPUs, and they're bringing more games, like actual AAA titles, to to the Mac now for the first time. So. Yeah, I feel like it's been a successful change for Apple. I don't know what's going to happen with this Qualcomm chip on the PC side. I'm just dreading the next time I have to test another Windows on ARM laptop because I am I'm a Windows diehard and I can feel when things are slow and when things are not as good as an x86 chip, unfortunately. Yeah, so let's stop rehashing old debates and talk about Riley Reed launching a AI chatbot. Tell me more about this. Sure. So we saw the news this week that Riley Reed, the adult film star, uh, launched Clona.ai which is a sexting chatbot platform. And there's a great interview over at um, 404 Media. I believe we, we shout them out a lot. Great work there, uh, just talking with why she's doing this. And basically, it sounds like Riley Reed wants to embrace the power of AI instead of just being worried about like what it could mean for the future of, um, you know, of adult film stars and the future of media in general. This is a thing you talk to. You can be a little, you know, erotic with it. Um, there are limits, which I think are interesting. Uh, as part of this platform, the performers themselves put in the limits of, like, what they will talk about. So Riley Reed in particular talked about, like, dangerous sex acts that she just does not want to really engage with or encourage other people to engage with. And I think that's kind of... Stuff that's that it. would hurt her brand. Hurt her brand, but also, you know, hurt people potentially, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is interesting. Like taking control of your AI is something we're going to see more of. A, you know, was it Grimes announced her thing too? Like, at least like giving limits, like, hey, take my samples, right? Take my voice and build around it. But also, I'm going to get a cut of that. You know, so having control is key. So I think this is really smart. First of all, $30 a month, that is more than your average OnlyFans subscription. Let's be real. But 
this is really smart, I think, for two reasons. One, the long tail for adult performers um, is really variable. Like, you need to work really hard in order to stay relevant into, um, you know, your 40s and 50s and beyond. So it, I think this is a really smart thing for Riley to be doing in order to just, like, continue making money. If she has a stake in this company, period, that means that they could possibly roll this out to ad other adult performers and maybe entirely synthetic chatbots that do the same thing. And she continues making money off of this. That's good for her. There is somebody oh, else. Like, there's another chatbot, uh, Lena the Plug, who is an OnlyFans star, I believe, is also in this roster. So she, it seems like... Okay, so you don't know who uh, Lena the Plug is, but I do. She is married to this guy, Adam22, who's a YouTuber. and uh, These are also, names now, sure. Okay, yeah. He yeah. hosts this, like, rap and um, kind of like hip-hop culture podcast called No Jumper, but go on. <laughs> there was a, there was a like tweet recently about like every, everything I'm talking about is like a gobbledygook, like two millennials, right? Every, every name, every brand, every music group, like it is just, I, I'm feeling that generational shift now, but anyway. Okay, is, but um, there's a yeah. second reason why I think this is really smart for Riley Reid to be doing, because do you remember there being some really weird ads for this other chatbot service called Replica. Yes. This is yeah. Replica spelled with a K. And at the very beginning, they were like, oh, here's a friend that you can have, and they live on the internet. And then eventually it started going in the direction of being kind of like porny in that way. Mm -hmm. And then several months ago, they completely stopped doing any kind of like spicy chat on yeah. Replica. Yeah. Yeah. And the subreddit for this service melted down. That's what people were using it for. So... Yeah. That's a sign of white space, as they call it, in business. People want to do that, so why not let them? Why not? And also have the guardrails. And it's like, it is one of those things that it is, they're not hurting anybody. Like, it is a chatbot. Uh, we have often talked about the epidemic of loneliness that is kind of afflicting, afflicting our society now, too. Like, people just need friends. Sometimes they just need people to talk to for mental well-being. So this isn't just about getting your rocks off. Like, I think these sorts of things could be genuinely useful to people. Also, it feels like we reference the movie uh, Her quite a bit. Spike Jones is Her. But that is Seems what like I'm thinking Seems like we're getting closer like, and closer to you're it You're going to have day. your own Riley Reed, who knows you, right? Like, who knows what you like and will genuinely want to talk to you. Maybe more like the one from Blade Runner 2049. Because that was actually like a bot that was your friend, and uh, Ryan Gosling's character would like basically pretend it was his wife or a girlfriend or something. So, hey, that is something. Um, it's fascinating. We're definitely going to keep it a closer eye on that too. Let's move on to what we've been working on. And uh, as I talked about last week, uh, I have been reviewing the big screen beyond VR headset that reviews up on Engadget right now. And I honestly like this thing a lot more than I thought I would. It is a super small VR headset. Um, so like it is sort of like if you took a Valve Index or, a, or the original uh, Meta, Meta uh, Oculus Quest and just like chopped off the top and bottom halves and you just kept the visor portion. And this thing, um, it weighs 
slightly more than a deck of cards. It is super light. Um, it 3D scans your face to create a, a custom foam interface that goes right over your eyes so there's no light leakage. Um, it also supports um, prescription lenses because it's definitely too small to fit glasses or anything. Um, so altogether, this is one of the lightest VR solutions I've ever tested. Uh, the only downside is it has to be connected to a PC. And it also requires all the hardware of the Valve Index. And that is where it gets messy because you need the two Steam VR base stations. You need two Valve, um, you need two Steam controllers as well. Altogether, those things are easily, I think over 600 bucks for those accessories. So really this thing is an upgrade for Valve Index owners who want something brighter, lighter, a little more comfortable. It uses micro OLED screens. I really like it, but man, is it, it is also endemic of all the problems facing VR right now. So kind of the same issues I had with the PlayStation VR too. You know, it is very good, but nobody really needs to buy this. Very cool, but very expensive. Very niche. Very Basically, it's for the niche of the niche because it's basically for Valve Index owners who already have these accessories. So it's just a really weird thing. Um, also, when it comes to like VR, AR stuff, I'm going to be testing the X-Real Air 2 glasses. And these are, they look like normal glasses or shades basically, but they also have a micro OLED display within them for projecting, uh, these are meant to plug into a computer or even a game console or something to have like a virtualized uh, screen view of whatever you're plugging into. So sort of AR, because you can still see the real world through them, but also you could be on a plane and be like working on a giant screen of work from your from your laptop or something. That's kind of cool. So I need to do some more testing on these things. Uh, they already launched in China, but they are up for pre-order now for 400 bucks. Um, so kind of cool. Ben, what's up with you? So I'm actually working on something related to VR and the metaverse too. Uh, if you heard the episode a couple of weeks ago, you, I mentioned that I was the story editor on this Digiday podcast called, is this the metaverse? And that just wrapped up recently. So if you want to go and listen to that in full, all episodes are available now. And this is really a survey course mm -hmm. of metaverse topics right now. We're talking about exercise in the metaverse. We're talking about advertising in the metaverse. We're talking about fashion and like fashion design in the metaverse. If you are looking for a good first place to like start understanding me the metaverse and metaverse communities, I think this would be a good thing to listen to. As I joked about in all of our meetings uh, planning this show, the real metaverse is the friends we made along the way. It's really just the next step for It's the online, online friends we made along the way. Like, that's what it is. Yes. Like, my metaverse has always been, like, the, the anime chat rooms I was in in the 90s, where I met people that I still talk to to this day. So it's just, yeah, that's the internet. The internet enables a metaverse of whatever new technologies we have, right? Let's move on to some picks for the week, some pop culture picks. I want to shout out Super Mario Wonder. I really want to get Sam Rutherford here to talk about his review of this game, but I've played maybe four or five hours right now. And I have to say, this may be like the best 2D Mario games in Super Mario World. I really like Yoshi's Island too, but for me, Mario World was always like the apex of what Nintendo accomplished with 2D Mario. And then 3D Mario stuff started happening. And as a kid, I will tell you, I was never super into Mario 64. I was like, I, I it felt a little, it didn't feel like Mario. It felt like something else entirely. Um, and then th those have become the flagship franchise titles. Um, and I really liked Odyssey, but I've never been in love with the 3D Mario game as much as I have with the 2D ones. 
And I feel like Mario Wonder just really gets it. It is, I think, more inventive and more interesting than like, um, was it like uh, Super Mario Wii U? There were there were like a whole bunch of ones for the 3DS, right? And uh, and the and the Wii U and even the Switch. And I just felt like they felt very simplistic. Whereas this one is full of wonder. It is full of like crazy inventive ideas. Every stage is a little different. They also contain these things called wonder flowers, which completely like upend the way a stage functions. So uh, in one stage, I hit the wonder flower and the piranha plants just started singing. And it's that's, just really, that's really funny. It just becomes like a really cute thing. I'm playing it with my daughter and she loves it too because she likes seeing the characters. It also has like great, you know, great ways to bring kids in because some characters can't get hurt. So if you play the Yoshis um, or one of the other characters, I forget their name, they cannot get hurt. They, I don't think they can even fall. So it's a great way for a kid to like participate in a stage with you. There's cool online play, but it's really just the ideas. Like at one point, a wonder flower, like forced the game into a top down perspective. So I was moving Mario around, like he was solid snake or something in in the original (laughs) metal gear solid. And, I just you don't expect these things to happen. It's just always surprising, always inventive, and really, really cool. So that's what yeah. I noticed when I was playing Super Mario Odyssey a few years ago. I was playing it on my brother's Switch. I did not have a Switch of my own at the time. It was sometime when both of us were home, like over the holidays. And I kept on saying to him, like, wow, Nintendo's fun scientists have outdone themselves. They are There's very good just fun like, scientists. Yeah surprise and delight around every corner like just little inventive game design ideas Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's the sort of thing that i think could continue to be studied in game design classes for a really long time for sure for sure like i am i don't call myself a fanboy of many companies but i am most definitely a nintendo fanboy like i bought the oled switch because i needed the the idea was it the red and blue you know, colors, but also I wanted to have the best thing to play. Um, was it Tears of the Kingdom? And I feel like, um, you know, the Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom also exhibit these same things. It's just like how you guys just like really are sitting there thinking about like how to really upend and, you know, change the way we think of games. And what's really cool is that the people working on these Zeldas and this Mario game were some of the people who worked on the original 8-bit versions. So Nintendo also has that institutional knowledge of people who've just been in it and thinking about it for so long. So anyway, Super Mario Wonder is fantastic. You should go play it if you don't if you have a Switch. Probably uh, this game is essentially being sold as a swan song for the Switch. So hey, we're probably going to get a, get a new console next year. Um but I do think it is worth picking up this console if you can find one cheap if you somehow have not had a Switch so far. It's worth getting one just to play this game, just to play Tears of the Kingdom. I also want to shout out the show Bodies, which is on Netflix right now, which is a cool little thing that I think the Engadget audience may be into. It is a murder mystery um, set across um, four different timelines, I believe, of uh, the cops find a naked body in an alley in London, and they have found it across different times, like the 1890s, the 1940s, the uh, essentially now, and then the 2050s. So it's a really ambitious sci-fi concept. I don't think it entirely works, but it is a good genre watch because there are some great actors here, including Kyle Soler. He was that really dorky guy in Andor, the like total like 
the guy who's like totally for the baddies, like the one who wants to do everything to be the best baddie he can be. And he is a fantastic in this show. He also stars Shira Haas, who is in um, that Netflix series, Unorthodox, which was also really good. So really good actors. I think it's kind of clunky, not great writing, but what a cool concept, you know? An ambitious sci-fi concept from Netflix that doesn't quite land? Sounds like Altered Carbon. I'm in! It's like all of them. Um, <laughs> certainly a lot lot less of a budget than Altered Carbon, but yeah, very, very much the same idea. This is sort of like if you smash a couple of Netflix, uh, you know, algorithm uh, concepts for genre shows together, you essentially get this. I also talk about this more on the Extra Hot Great podcast this week. So that is one of my favorite TV shows. So if you want to hear more about that, just go check out that show. Also, I want to shout out, uh, we did a special episode last week that I forgot to mention in the main episode, but uh, I chatted with Max Avery, the author of A Masterpiece in Disarray, and it's his oral history of David Lynch's Dune. He got to talk to David Lynch. He talked to, you know, everybody. Everybody involved, most of the people involved with that movie, Kyle MacLachlan as well. And I think it's a really interesting exploration of making a movie that is essentially a failure, but it's a cool discussion of the people who are trying to do something really interesting with it. So if you're a sci-fi nerd, if you have any, you know, love for that David Lynch Dune, or you just want to hear about like movie making in general, I think this is a really good book. So check out that podcast interview with Max Avery from last week. Ben, what's up with you? Devendra, we're going to the pasture to meet Adelaide and ask her if she has a way to send us back where we came from. Mm. It is time to rewatch Over the Garden Wall. If you're not aware of Over the Garden Wall, it is a limited series that Cartoon Network did in 2014, and man, has it just appreciated since then. It has become a really beloved rewatch for the people in the know about it. It stars Elijah Wood and a age-appropriate um, kid as his younger brother, and it's generally like two brothers, or half-brother, finding their way through a magical forest, trying not to get eaten by the beast, and generally just having a good time in a fall atmosphere. If you've ever found yourself looking for another fall rewatch, if you're tired of It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, I don't know how you could, but if you're tired of that, go check this out because it is delightful and it's kind of spooky. When I say that it's a fairy tale, it's really like a grim fairy tale. Yeah, I don't know. It's not great for young kids. I, I would no, not. No, no. It, so stay away for young kids. I would say maybe kids like 10 to 12 yeah. and up. Even if you're an adult, you're going to be a little unsettled by some of this, which is perfect for even the most squeamish of I don't like horror folks, among which I'm definitely one. I just don't like horror. So check out Over the Garden Wall. It could give you a last minute Halloween costume. It was my last minute Halloween costume the first year I saw it in 2018, and man, was it a hit at Halloween parties. I had no idea so many people were so affectionate toward it, and that's what really got me to continue watching it. Nice, nice. I, I Yeah, I remember watching this when it came out then, and uh, I knew it was going to be an instant classic because it's one of those things, it is really quiet, it is really creepy, and it's a very specific tone that is not 
really for everyone, I think, except, uh, you know, if you appreciate grim fairy tales, basically. You used to be able to find the show on Max, but apparently it just, like, disappeared at the end of August, and now it's on Hulu, so nothing makes sense. But this is one of those things that's also good enough that you should probably just buy it so you don't have to chase it across different streaming services. Also, one of my recommendations for people who are annoyed by streaming service price changes, buy your content, folks, especially things you love. So that's it for our episode this week. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by me, Ben Elman. And you can find Devendra online at... I'm at Devendra on, on Twitter, on Mastodon, on Blue Sky. I'm spending more time on Mastodon these days, so find me there. If you want to see me being sassy toward the back-up camera of a Tesla, you can find my old Twitter feed at Hey Bellman. that's H-E-Y-B-E-L-L-M-A-N. But if you want to get in touch with me, just send me an email at benelman.wave at gmail.com. Please send us an email at podcast at Engadget.com if you have anything to say about streaming service, price hikes, or fun fall watches. Leave us a review on iTunes, and you can find us anywhere podcasts can be found, RSS, or streaming.